let's look this morning at Luke chapter 14, verse 7. Uh, the setting is a dinner party. Jesus has been invited to a dinner party, and uh, this is what happens. It says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you have given us this hour, hour and 15 minutes to come and to set aside uh, all of those things that distract us and burden us in life so that we can seek you. And this morning we long to hear your voice. We pray, just as, as Mitch led us earlier, that, that we might hear you whispering to us this morning uh, through this passage. We pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our ears so that whatever it is that we might need to learn, that you would be our teacher today. And we pray even that as we uh, celebrate communion later in the service, that you would even be about softening and, and preparing our hearts for that too. We pray for Joe as he teaches us this morning that you would give him clarity. We pray that you may we uh, apply it to our lives in the ways that you desire. And this we ask uh, humbly and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open the building with no power legally, so kind of a no-brainer, but uh, it was definitely sad to miss all of you. So I'm glad you're here today. This is very good. Um, you know, it was awesome for me this morning to be able to sit uh, with you and just sit through worship. Uh, I don't get to do that very often, and usually when I do, I'm really thinking about everything that's happening and being like, why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Um, it's true. But our team did an awesome job. I'm so excited and proud uh, Lane did an awesome job on sound, Mary on slides, and the whole team, and Mitch. I, did, I didn't even come to rehearsal this week. They just handled it, and it was awesome. So I'm really blessed and thankful for those guys. Yeah, absolutely. They worked really hard. Um, I am the tech guy, and I can't connect. So uh, you're going to have to help me out here. But today we're going to talk about the parable of the wedding feast. And uh, what I love about this parable, sometimes we read a parable, and then we get to the end, and we're like, what? And here we get to the end of the parable, and Jesus is like, this. He tells us. He gives us the answer. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the event, like the actual parable that happens in itself, and then what that has to do with our daily walk and the condition of our heart. And then lastly, what does that parable mean for our spiritual life and our eternal life? Uh, so let's take a look. Let's dig right in. So the parable of the wedding feast. So now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. I want to remind you the setting of this parable. Jesus is invited to one of the prominent Pharisees' house for a banquet, and he's sitting there noticing that as they're coming in, they're picking all the best seats, and he's just kind of observing this. Um, 
So he gives this parable. I want you to, to visualize this like U-shaped table. This is kind of how they're sitting. And um, at the center, you can see, like the only thing we can really compare this to would be like maybe a small wedding. You'll see this kind of setup. And in the middle, we have typically the bride and groom. And then the people that are most important to them are closest to them. And then as you get further and further, at the end of the seat, we don't even know that guy. He just came. So this is kind of what's happening here. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 8. So when you are invited uh, by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Now, I actually called Tom a week and a half ago. I was like, what's a good analogy for this? Like, we don't really do this anymore. And he's like, use the wedding feast. Like, that's what it is, you know. So I want you to think about this. So roll the calendar back one year and think about you're going to your sister's wedding in their backyard because it's illegal to have the wedding anywhere else, okay? And there's like 30 people invited, and you show up to the wedding, and you you see this table, same table, and you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit in the corner, on the, on the, the one seat in the corner, on the best row, because it's my sister, you know? So you pop yourself up in the corner. Go ahead and hit the next slide for me here. Boom, that's you. My wife's the artist, as you can tell. Um, so everybody sits down. All the other guests fill in, and then the wedding party rolls in, and there's a DJ, and they're announcing each person by name, and you quickly realize, oh, there is a wedding party in this wedding, even though it's small, and they are one seat short. So then what happens is you have to go all the way to the end of the table, and now you're the nobody. It's embarrassing. You know, it wasn't when people were walking in, nothing was happening. No, everybody's attention is focused on the bridal party. They're all seated, and then you have to do the walk of shame to the end. So practically speaking, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's like, I watched all of you guys come in. You picked the best seats. Don't do that. And then he goes on to say this in verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. So instead, what you should do is you should sit all the way at the end of the table and start there. And then when your sister comes in and she says, what are you doing here? We don't even know the person you're next to. She will move you closer. And then you can be honored in front of everybody. So here's the practical application of what's, doing, what's happening here. Jesus is saying, don't seek the best seat. Seek the worst seat so that when whoever's having the banquet or wedding feast, they will bring you up to the front. Uh, and then at the very end, he gives, here's like the lesson to be learned in this parable. He says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is not new news to any of the people here. It shouldn't be. It's not new news to us either. Uh, and we see actually in several other passages either alluding to this or directly saying this. We see earlier in Luke 11, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. This is the exact same principle. He's saying, don't do that. Um, here in the parable of the wedding feast, and he's going to say it again in a little bit. Beware of the scribes who uh, like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Like verbatim, right there. And this comes out of Proverbs 25.7 saying, For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. So the practical, physical application of this passage, they should have already known. And we've heard this before, too. Um, but now let's look at kind of what's the heart condition that we need to deal with inside of this practical application. So I want to share with you, I have some friends. Um, I went to a school that had a lot of international students, and I have some friends from Argentina, from Brazil, from Mexico, and 
Um, one of them was telling me one day, they're like, you know, Joe, it's really funny. Even when we're in our own countries, we can tell an American immediately. We know them by three things. And I was like, well, what are those three things? They said they always wear white socks, they have perfect teeth, and they emanate pride. He said, those three things I can tell an American by anywhere. And I found that fascinating. Pride's a really tricky thing because I, I view pride similar to the way I view the word love. We have one word that means actually a lot of things. I love my wife. I also love my truck, but not the same way. Pride is similar. There's, pride is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's not all bad, but it's also not all good either. You have to look at it and kind of understand how without pride. So I have a, a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements and the achievements of those uh, with whom one is closely associated or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. It also means consciousness of one's own dignity. And dignity, just to break it down one step further, is a state or quality of being worth or worthy of honor or respect. So pride can be good. Pride can also be bad. Um, and commonly, uh, we see you know, the negative side of that. So if we have pride in ourselves, it would be a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction from one's own achievements, from what they've done on their own. Um, and that leads somebody to be conscious of the state of being worthy of honor. So if we put pride in ourselves, uh, we think about the things that we've done, and basically we're communicating to other people that because I did such and such, you should respond to me like this. And usually it's higher than however they are responding to you. You're expecting other people, hey, I got this going on. You need to respect me because of that. That is a heart attitude that some people have that is anti-Christian. That is not pro-God. That is against God. And that falls under the category of pride. Um, but there is a good kind of pride. And there is a pro-Christian, pro-God version of pride. And that's to have pride in others. So if we take that same definition and we take a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction in the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated and flip that around to the state of being worthy of honor, we're thinking about the people around us instead of us ourselves. So a good example of that would be like high school graduation. High school student graduates high school, you're proud of them. You're excited for their hard work, for their accomplishment. You throw a party, you send out the invites, everything's great, and you honor them inside of that. Or somebody gets a new job, and you go out for dinner, and you tell them, man, I'm so proud of you for accomplishing that, from working hard, for taking the initiative to seek this out. Or even a child drawing their first painting. You're proud. You put it up on their fridge. All of those versions of pride are very good. They're very healthy, and they're very Christ-honoring. Um, so this brings us kind of to our first big idea that in humility, we need to count others more significant than ourselves. This is one core thing that we see out of this passage that it's not about us. It's not about trying to get the best seat, but it's about putting others first and giving them the best that's a hard thing to do because everything in our nature doesn't want that. We want the best for ourselves. Um, and we see that in our, in our whole world. You know, I think about when I couldn't get toilet paper. I was like, I might have to go to the church and steal some toilet paper here. Like, this is getting rough. <laughs> you know, everybody's just concerned about themselves and not about other people. And it's really easy to get caught up in that because you're like, I obviously need this. But then I think about the passages where it's like, well, God is in control. He knows what I need, and he's going to handle that. Everything that I need you know, he will give me, and look, we're all here today still, like, we made it through the toilet paper crisis, you know, um, but it's still a very true thing, and uh, 
I want to share this passage with you out of Philippians, talking more about this. So um, that big idea, I obviously didn't create that. You know, we see that other passage, and we're going to read it here in Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humilities count others more significant than yourselves. This is Paul talking to us. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see at the beginning of this, um, what's our response? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to humble ourselves and count other people more valuable than ourselves. And then he pivots and goes to Christ. He's like, this is why you need to do this, because Christ has already done this. He's already given you a really good example, not just really good, but ultimate, perfect example of humility. It says here that Christ Jesus emptied himself in the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross. That's the calling that we have as Christians in our humility is that we are so humble that we're willing to even die on a cross. That's what it says here. Like that's our ultimate example, that we will sacrifice everything we are for those around us to the glory of God. Um, it's been my tag for like two years that um, that Romans passage that says that our, our life is supposed to be a living sacrifice. That means the same thing, that we need to humble ourselves and be willing to do whatever it is to serve those around us. So here's the big eye number two. Christ's ultimate sacrifice is our ultimate example of humility. We are supposed to do it because Christ did it. We're supposed to be like him, and that carries over into humility also. Now, that's all fine and dandy. So we talked about <clears throat> the physical application of this parable. Like, what are we supposed to do? Okay, find the worst seat. And then the heart condition, dealing with pride and humility. <clears throat> now let's talk about the eternal perspective of what this feast is and what it means so there's this last little part. He who humbles himself will be exalted. This is kind of tough because I know if you're anything like me, um, I'm like, I'm going to glorify myself. Like, that feels terrible to say. You know, that's not anything that I've been taught to try and seek out. You know, we're always been told, you know, even what I just read, like, humble ourselves, put others before you. But here it says, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Um, so I think it's important to understand what what are we supposed to be looking for? What, is this, what does this mean? Uh, and there's a couple passages that are going to lead us to a conclusion for this. So in Romans, for those whom before knew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, meaning that Christ is the first to be raised from the dead. And those whom he predestined, showing God's all-knowing. He knows who is going to accept him and who's not, and he's determined that. He also called, meaning called to be Christians, for those whom he called, he also justified, and we are justified by only the blood of Christ, not by anything that we do, but only by Christ's sacrifice for us. And them whom he justified, he also glorified. We see the same idea. Once again, um, this series of events leading to, to glory. Um, as we go back to this parable and we think about in Romans, I want to show you to kind of to get to what that's going to look like. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. You're being a hypocrite. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, 
you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impertinent hearts, uh, you are storing a breath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. I want to turn your attention to verse 7. To those who in, by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality. He's saying if you do this, you're going to have eternal life. Now, quick aside, that's not how you get eternal life. God gives us eternal life, once again, only through Christ. But he's saying to seek for glory, honor, and immortality. It's the third time now we're seeing this. Um, <clears throat> so it begs the question, what is that? What is that supposed to look like? And I'll tell you. So anything that we do for Christ and for God and we glorify him, that's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to glorify him through anything that we do for him. When we practice humility and we esteem others higher than ourselves, we are glorifying God. But what's really interesting is if we look at pride, if we put our own confidence in ourselves, you know, that's a, that's a bad thing. But if we're esteeming others higher than ourselves and we're encouraging them and we're having pride in other people, that is a good thing. And what's going to happen is we're going to get, if you look at the end of Revelation, you'll see there's the, the book of life and then it says there's other books. And it's like, well, what do we got going on in these other books? In the book of life, it's all the names of those who've accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in these other books is everything that everybody has ever done, which if you, I don't know, I think that's kind of scary to think about all the things that we've ever done. Um, and he's going to open the book of life, and if your name is in there, we're going to be with Christ forever. And if it's not, people get thrown into the lake of fire. And over here is all the things that anybody has ever done. Now, we know that nobody's righteous, not even one. And it only takes one sin against God to be seen as unrighteous and unfit for the kingdom. But as a Christian, it's really exciting. When we ask for forgiveness from God, it says that not only does he forgive us, but he removes the transgression and forgets about it as far as the east is from the west. So all of those things that we've done to offend God, that we did to self-glorify ourselves and not glorify him, they're not in that book. They're gone as far as east is from west. And every single time and we humble ourselves, and we esteem somebody higher than ourselves. We glorified God even in that action. And every other way that we've served God, and every time that we've done our job uh, with a heart focused on God, we glorify God in all of those things too. And all of those are written in those other books. And when God opens those, and he sees all those ways that we've glorified him, it says that he'll glorify us in that moment. So as it says here, to seek for glory and honor and immortality the important part is the subject. This brings us to big idea three. Seek glory and honor, but seek it from Christ, not from others. By giving all we are to Jesus. I'm going to read that one more time. Seek glory and honor from Christ, not from other people. By giving all we are to Jesus. Because Christ alone gives us our salvation. It all ties back to the pride issue. Who is your audience? Is it the other people? Is it your, the people at your workplace? Is it your family? Is it maybe your church? Or is God your audience? Because if you're doing your things to make other people seem like you're better than you are, then that's a negative thing of pride. But if you're esteeming people higher than you and you're doing it for 
God, and a lot of times he's the only one that sees anything that happens in that arena, but in the last day, he will glorify you. Whew, that's it. Um, I want to leave you with this one passage. It's not a passage, actually. It's a quote from an early 17th uh, century poet. Um, and what I love about th- I actually stole this book out of Devin's office. I'm working in his office right now. I was like, that's a good quote. I'm going to take that. Um, George Herbert, he was also a priest, but it says this. Humble we must be if to heaven we go. High is the roof there, but the gate is low. I think this really captures the heart of a Christian, that if we expect to enter into that gate, with Christ forever, in glory with him forever. We have to humble ourselves like Christ did, even to the point of the cross, to die to ourselves, to die to our own selfish ambitions, and to really serve God and glorify him by serving one another. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love and your mercy for all those times that we have not been humble and not shown humility. Lord, thank you for uh, just your long-suffering and your patience with us as we grow in you. And, Lord, I pray that this parable that you taught at that banquet will resonate with us way beyond the physical application to our heart and our eternal perspective. Lord, that we will want to glorify you and honor you and live our lives in front of the audience of you and you alone and not our peers, Lord, and that that will inform our decisions in a way that makes us want to serve you and walk into every good work that you have for us. Lord, please give us the courage and the boldness to want to serve you with every fiber of our being, or of our being and to not shy away um, whenever there's a need or something that we can do for the kingdom. Lord, I pray that in everything we do that you'll be glorified and that our own pride will be subdued, that we won't do it for our own selfish ambition, but that we'll do it to advance the kingdom of God. And Lord, we long for the day to be in front of you face to face and to live with you forever in the light forever because there is no darkness in you, Lord. Lord, thank you that we can be part of your family. And Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.